Okay, during their 500-year empire, the Romans crucified how many people? We don't know the exact number. Thousands and thousands of people. Can anyone name three of those people that the Romans crucified? You know one, right? Yes, yeah, somebody said it. Thank you. Don't be tentative. It's church. Jesus, yeah. It's usually the answer to the question, all right? Jesus was one. Any Christian historians out there know the second one? Someone said it, maybe Peter. Peter, the legend has it that Peter was crucified upside down. All right, number three. Silence. Nobody knows. Spartacus. Yeah, for some of you uh, people who are more my vintage, you may remember the movie. Actually, the movie predates us. If you saw the 1960 classic movie, Spartacus, directed by none other than the great Stanley Kubrick starring Kirk Douglas, that's going to be your number three. That's the third person that most people might know of when it comes to uh, who was crucified. Spartacus led a slave rebellion around 70 BC, so 70 years before Jesus was born. And that rebellion made Rome stand up and take note. Rome had millions and millions of slaves. And if Spartacus, who was a gladiator, could successfully or nearly successfully lead a slave rebellion, the Romans knew that a larger effort, a more organized effort, could spell the end of their empire. Well, Spartacus' rebellion ultimately failed. And I'm sorry if that spoiled the movie for you. But you did have about 61 years to see it. So, sorry, not sorry, I guess. But after that, the Romans took Spartacus, after he lost, and all the people who fought on his side, and they crucified every one of them. And they placed them so that everyone would see these rebellious soldiers. They placed the crosses along the road from the site of the final battle all the way back to Rome. And they left the bodies there. The bodies just hanging there. Yuck, gross. They were just there for however long it took to, to rot or to be picked away by the animals. And the Romans were serious. That's why they did this crucifixion thing. It was to make sure that nobody participated in something like that again. And then Roman historians, because, you know, the Romans were kind of in charge of things at the time, they made sure their historians told the story of Spartacus. They made sure that that story was disseminated throughout their empire in order to discourage any further slave rebellions. It worked. And we know the story today because of those Roman historians. But here's a less obvious question. How do we know the story of Jesus? Why do we know the story of a random Jewish carpenter who was crucified by Rome, along with who knows how many other people who lived in what was essentially the armpit of the Roman Empire, Judea? If you remember, and we've talked about it over the years, nobody wanted to go to Judea. The Romans didn't want to be stationed in Judea. It was just not the place to be. Why is it we even know Jesus' name, let alone so much about him, let alone his story? You know, secular historians almost never wrote about him. No important people from his day wrote about him. So how do we know? How do we know more about Jesus than we do about any of the Roman emperors. And how is it that 2,000 years ago, a guy named Jesus, who did some amazing things, who did some miraculous things, how is it that today 
That guy has a third of the world's population believing that he is somehow connected to God. How is it that today there are 2.5 billion people around the world who believe in Jesus? How did that happen? And how did this Jesus movement get started? And how did it spread? And why did anybody pay any attention? Seriously, how do we explain how anyone even remembers Jesus' name after the first century? Well, here's the answer. We know about Jesus because of the testimony of eyewitnesses. People who saw what happened left us accounts of his life. And that's where we started last week in our series that we're calling Big Church. We started off in the book of Acts, also known as the Acts of the Apostles. And in Acts, which was written by Luke, remember Luke was a physician, and he traveled with the Apostle Paul. He wrote the Gospel of Luke. He wrote the, what we call the book of Acts. And Acts presents an orderly and detailed account. He was a doctor, and that makes perfect sense. Doctors have that kind of orderly and detailed scientific fact-based mind. And so he gave us this account of the eyewitness testimony of many to not only the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, which are contained in the gospel, but also to the beginnings of the spread of this early church movement, this early ecclesia throughout the world. Now, as we saw last week, the church started as a movement. It started with a handful of people who believed Jesus actually rose from the dead. Those People, though, weren't just particularly gullible people. They were there. They were on site for the events. They lived in Jerusalem, where Jesus actually was crucified, where he actually rose from the dead, where he actually ascended. He went up to heaven. And though it's tough to explain, it was these witnesses who were able to say, it happened. It actually happened. We saw it happen. Well, last week in Acts 1 and 2... We saw how about 120 of these eyewitnesses went into the streets of Jerusalem and began to proclaim that Jesus is the risen Son of God. Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, and that he'd been raised from the dead. And then Luke told us how the church got started on that day when that very message was preached, and about 3,000 people embraced the idea that Jesus is the Christ, is the Messiah. Remember, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's his job title. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah. They embraced the idea that Jesus had risen from the dead. By the way, it wasn't 20 years before they were talking about it. And it wasn't 500 miles away from where they were talking about it. But it was two months before they were talking about it. And it was right there. Like, right, they go right over there, 100 yards from here. That's where he rose from the dead. 100 yards from here, that's where he ascended to heaven. And so with that, the church was born. And it was born as a movement. There were no church buildings. There was no church liturgy. There were no church banners or bands or budgets. We love alliteration, pastors. We just like to. But there were none of those things. Not only that, there were no priests like those in the temple. No, in the early church, it was just a group of people who saw something and saw somebody and believed that something had happened supernaturally in their midst. And then they told people about it. That's how the church was born. And that's how the church survived the first century. You see, the first century church didn't survive and didn't thrive just because of Jesus' teachings. 
Now, we know Jesus' teachings, but that's not what made the church survive and thrive in that first century. It survived, and it thrived because something extraordinary happened. And that happening, that something was the resurrection. The resurrection formed the basis for the teachings and beliefs of those first followers of Jesus that we now refer to as Christians. But remember what we talked about last week. The church wasn't established as an organization. It began as a movement of people with a simple mission. That people know that Jesus has risen from the dead and that people who surrendered their life to him would live eternally with the God of the universe. That's the message. That's the message that underlies the movement. The followers of Jesus went out from their community, as Jesus called them to do, and they spread this good news. So when the movement was founded, the movement was a thoroughly outward-focused movement. Okay, in other words, it was, this is for everybody. We're here to tell everybody else about what has happened, what we witnessed. But over time, something else happened. Something changed. Over time, the church started to become an organization. And yes, it's true that in order to have a lasting movement, you need to have some kind of organization. You need to organize somewhat to be able to survive. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. But it was more than that. Over time, the church began to acquire things, buildings and, and property and assets. And then the church established a hierarchy. Well, there was a pope and there were archbishops and there were bishops and there were priests. And then some people started to exercise control over other people. And then before long, they realized that that control was an incredible power rush. They could leverage their concept of the way that religion should be practiced in order to control the people who came to listen to them. And with that, the whole movement began to go off the rails. This outwardly focused movement, based upon the mission of telling the whole world without regard to one's ethnicity or gender or people group of origin, but telling the whole world that Jesus is the Son of God and has risen from the dead, this outwardly focused movement began to turn inward. Now, before we get used to throwing rocks at others, it's important to understand how this typically happens. It happens quickly, and it happens, what I said, covertly. Like, you don't see it coming. It's kind of hidden. Andy Stanley likes to say it this way. The gravitational pull of every local church is back toward the insiders. The gravitational pull of every local church is back toward the insiders. Every local church eventually starts going, are our people happy? Are we doing enough to please our people? See, it's ridiculously easy to say that the church forgot its mission. It's ridiculously easy for the church to forget its mission. It's ridiculously easy for a church to become inwardly focused. When I first arrived here, which is now over a dozen years ago, I can't believe that, but I was tasked to replant the church. It was a church that had been here for a while. They needed to have some new blood, some new ideas, a new vision, a new direction. And I'll tell you that the most difficult thing I had to do upon my arrival was to try to diffuse the anger of the insiders who were already here regarding the new, more unchurched people who started coming in every Sunday. 
Let me just say that I was a bit surprised by some of the things that the church people from the old church angrily said about me because I was trying to bring new people to meet Jesus. I'm not going to dwell on that. I have stories. You might, by the way, have church stories as well. Inwardly focused churches can cause the faithful severe and irreparable damage. Now, my experience has impacted me to the point where I don't think I'll ever ignore the danger of becoming a self-centered community. But I had to learn that the hard way. It's a sad thing when your pagan friends, your non-believing friends, seem more caring and more loving than your Christian friends. Now, in contrast to that scenario stands Acts 1, 2, and 3, which we started to look at last week. And we're going to continue looking at this book of Acts today and in the weeks ahead. See, when we read about the early church in the book of Acts, we can't help but notice what I described bears no resemblance whatsoever to the local church established in the first century. The first century church was a missional church, was a church that was outwardly focused. In the first century, the believers loved and shared with each other. The believers took care of each other. And it was Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, the one who lived and died and rose again that brought all these people together. That was the thing that bound them all together. And if someone believed in that, they were in, they were a part of the community. And if they didn't believe in that, the believers were there to help them get there, to help them do so. In that church, they didn't view non-believers as enemies. In that church, they weren't against non-believers. The believers were just excited about sharing Jesus with everybody. That was the amazing church in the first century. And we're going to talk about just how amazing that church was in the weeks ahead. In the first century church's uniqueness, winsomeness, and attractiveness, it found growth. It found success. That church grew very quickly. And fast-growing churches also can turn inward very easily. So from our first day here, we made sure to be clear that we wanted to be a church not for church people, but rather a church for people who weren't wild about what church can become when it stops being about loving on Jesus and sharing his love with everyone and leading others into a right relationship with God the Father. We, we began Hammock Street Church as a church for people who don't like church. In fact, we used to have that on our old sign, and there's a couple of people here that came in because it was on the sign like that. A church that unchurched people love to attend. But we're still not immune from that pull toward an inward focus. Now, one of the ways that we can be certain to remain on mission is by looking at the way that we pray. So, why don't we pray, and then we'll talk about it, okay? Father God, thank you for gathering us here this morning. Thank you for this opportunity we have to study your word, to understand your church, to understand how you put us together as your people. So God, as we continue on this morning, we would ask that you would use your word to change us, to change our outlook, to change our hearts, to change our minds, and to motivate us to do all that we can to love you well. We thank you, God, for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So today we're going to be looking still in the book of Acts. We'll be in Acts chapter 4, and we'll be examining the first prayer that the early church prayed. So if you're a believer, if you have recognized the sin nature with which you were born, and you've recognized that that sin nature drives you toward being selfish, that selfish sin, which means that you're not thinking of God first, you're thinking of yourself first at all times, and you know now that you needed a Savior to redeem you. And if you recognized that notwithstanding that inherent sinfulness, Jesus loves you anyway, and out of his love for you, he's made a way for you to be connected forever with God when you turn from your natural self and understanding how he paid for all of your sins on that cross when he died, was entombed and rose from the dead and then ascended to heaven and promised to usher in God's kingdom here on earth. If after knowing all of that, you devoted your life to Jesus' lordship, you've accepted God's free gift of salvation, of eternal life, then you are connected to him and you've probably already developed kind of a standard way of praying. That's what most people do, is you get saved and you say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you with my life, and then you start figuring it out. Okay, how am I going to pray here? So I want to take a few seconds and think about what your prayers are usually like. All right, let me guess. Let me guess what your prayers are usually like. How can I do that? How can I possibly know what your prayers are usually like? Well, I think I can know because most of us pray the very same way. We all kind of do the same thing. There are exceptions, of course, I can name a dozen people at least who, whose prayers are so magnificent that every time I hear them, I just feel totally inadequate about my own prayers. I mean, that man, when I was first in the church, I used to hear people, and they would have these beautiful, flowy, big word prayers, and I'd be thinking, I will never get this. This is never going to work for me. But as far as most of us are concerned, we pretty much pray the same way as, as each other. Here's what we do. Isn't it the case that for the most part, we pray for ourselves and our families, and then for a few sick people that are on our minds? Isn't that kind of what we do? Yeah, I, that's what I do. And before I continue, let me take a moment to let you know, I'm not going to tease you, and I'm not going to belittle you for how you pray. I'm not going to tell you not to pray those things that you've always prayed for. I'm not going to stop praying for the things I've always prayed for. But I want to tell you these things, I want to build up to a point which you'll see in a moment. You see, when we pray for ourselves, our prayers are pretty basic. For the most part, we pray, things, we pray for things that are going to happen anyway. We pray for things that don't require very much of God. For example, before you get ready to go on a trip, on a road trip, you're going up to Disney for the day, what do you do? Dear God, please give us a safe trip. You ever pray that prayer? If you grew up in the church, you said it like this. Dear God, please grant us travel mercies. What, is that, what does that mean? But here's the truth. If we drive the speed limit, we wear our seatbelts, we don't fall asleep on the road, we're probably going to have a good trip. That's the way that usually works, right? That's an easy prayer. It, that, that kind of prayer, I, I sometimes think God goes, uh, uh, that's your prayer? Okay, cool, got it. Don't misunderstand me. That's fine. It's a fine prayer. I pray it every time I travel. But I'm saying, does going up to Orlando on a road trip really require divine intervention? And does a prayer like that really bolster your faith in God? Like you, you drove safely and you wore your seatbelt and you stayed awake and you got to Orlando and you kissed the ground and go, oh, God delivered me to Orlando. Woo. No, like 
the other few thousand people that went there that same day. I mean, that's what you did. How about this? If you're a student or if you were a student, you remember this one. Oh, God, please help me pass this test. Let me ask you, what would God do if you prayed that prayer, but you completely blew off your studying? But the atheist next to you, he or she studied for weeks. Do you think your prayer is going to bridge that gap between you not studying and them studying? How about this one? God, they're taking pictures tomorrow. Please clear up my skin. We ask God to clear up our blemishes. You might ask Dr. Pimple Popper to clear up your blemishes. Or maybe to give you some product. But I know that's a little sarcastic, but, but I hope you get the point. When we honestly consider the typical prayers that we pray, they're not very inspired, are they? They're not. And why is that? Why do you suppose that is? Well, could one reason be that we don't even know how to talk about our prayers? I was guilty of this one. We used to say to our sons before they went to bed, boys, did you say your prayers? What does that mean? What does that even mean? Like looking back, I think it kind of meant this. Boys, did you say that mindless thing that you usually say every night before you go to bed? Dear God, thank you for this day. Please bless mom. Please bless dad. You know, all that. Sometimes I can picture God in my mind's eye kind of rolling his eyes when I'm praying that kind of prayer going, I know, thank you for my day. Please bless mom and dad. I get it, I get it, I get it. Please help me be patient until my vacation, blah, blah, blah. I kind of feel like sometimes God's going, why do you keep asking me for silly stuff that's gonna happen anyway? Or thanking me for things about which I already know you're thankful. When are you gonna ask me for something important? Hmm. That's how we pray, yeah? Now, please, again, Keep on praying all your stuff. But also take note of this. You see what all those prayers have in common? Who's at the center of all those prayers? We are. It's us. We pray about us. In fact, if God were to affirmatively answer every one of those kind of prayers, who would benefit? We would benefit. Maybe our parents would benefit. Maybe our friends would benefit. But it's still about us. If God had answered every one of your prayers, for the most part, only you would be better off. I'm not saying that you shouldn't pray those prayers, but I am saying that when you have an ecclesia, a community full of self-centered prayers, people who pray, after a while, you start behaving like self-centered Christians. And when that happens, a healthy, helpful, and holy church can become just a place where church people get together to do church things and eventually grow tired of each other and then set off to find another building, which we call a church, and the self-centered cycle continues. But I know something about you. You want more than that. That's not going to do it for you. You want more than that in your life. You want to be a part of something bigger. You want to be a part of a church community that understands that Jesus didn't come to start an organization. Jesus didn't die for a building. Jesus started a worldwide movement. And Jesus calls all of God's people to join in and take part of this movement to seek and save the lost through Jesus' resurrection power. And if we want to be a part of God's big movement, we're going to have to start praying a different kind of prayer. The kind of prayer that the early believers prayed. What was that prayer? All right, let's set the stage. Now, last week, we saw that 
after Peter preached, about 3,000 people joined the church that day. So a few days after that, in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John were going to the temple in Jerusalem. Remember, the Jews believed that God resided in the temple, in the middle of the temple, in the Holy of Holies. So that's where they would go to pray to God. Remember also that after Jesus, Peter and John were basically the leaders of the church. They were the de facto leaders of the church. In the early days of the church movement, if you grew up Catholic, which many of you did, you already know how important Peter was. Peter is considered what? He's considered the first pope. To many people, Peter was the most important person in the Christian universe at that time. So anyway, Peter and John were traveling together, and they happened upon a beggar that had been unable to walk since childhood. Now, the, the Bible refers to the man as lame. Nowadays, we refer to that description as lame, but that's something different. So Peter and John walked by the guy, and he asked them for money, as beggars are wont to do. And Peter and John told him, we don't have any money for you, but on your deathbed, you will receive total consciousness. No, he did not say that. He said, we don't have any money for you, but we do want you to get up and walk. And with that, the guy was healed. He got up. He got up and walked. And he followed them to the temple. And the people in the temple recognized the formerly lame man. And I, I'm thinking they were, this doesn't say it in the Bible, but I'm thinking they're looking at him and going, hey, aren't you, aren't you Bill the lame guy? How are you walking now? I've been walking past you for years. What's going on here? This is amazing. I mean, there was a buzz. Think about it. Somebody who everybody knows just can't walk all of a sudden is walking around. There's a buzz that kind of goes around. People are like, did you see Bill? He was walking around. In fact, Peter was so motivated by the scene that was created that he decided to preach a sermon at the temple, even though he wasn't allowed to preach a sermon at the temple. And in the sermon, he spoke about Jesus' resurrection. In Acts chapter 4, Luke writes that by the end of Peter's message, over 5,000 men had come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, by the way, they always identify men or women or families. It just depends on the audience he was preaching to or where he was. Sometimes in the temple, only men were allowed. Sometimes they only list the men, but there were more people there. You can consider wives. You can consider children, but they count by 5,000 men. And if 5,000 men had come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah in that day, that would make up about 10% of the population in Jerusalem at that time. 10% of the population of Jerusalem had become a part of the movement that was based upon the belief that Jesus rose from the dead. That's a lot of people. And the energy was just palpable. Everybody got involved in it. It's generating this big energy. Well, that didn't sit well with the religious leaders. And they said to Peter, hey, you can't do that. You can't come in here and say these things, Peter. And they were certainly not happy with him reminding them over and over that they were the ones that crucified Jesus. They really didn't appreciate that at all. So they had Peter and John arrested and threw him in jail overnight. And the next day, the religious leaders met together, and they brought Peter and John before them, and they asked him, okay, what is it that you guys are talking about? In response, Peter preached again about how Jesus is the Son of God and how God raised him from the dead. And then Peter wrapped up his sermon by saying this. And this is in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name, he's talking about Jesus, no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must 
be saved. Now think about this. Peter was just in jail for saying the same thing. He just got out of jail. He hadn't been home yet. He hadn't changed his clothes. He hadn't showered. He still looked like he'd been in jail all night. He still smelled like he'd been in jail all night. And here he is saying the same thing. That's not what the leaders wanted to hear. But they were kind of stuck. Because the formerly lame man was with them, was with Peter and John at the inquiry. And it was no secret that God had performed a miracle on him. Everybody saw it. And everybody saw that Peter and James were the ones through whom, or Peter and John were the ones through whom the miracle was performed. And the leaders couldn't punish miracle workers in front of the people. So Luke continues in verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing with them, so he's right there. The leaders knew he was right there. The guy that they had previously seen never standing, they saw standing. It's hard to ignore that one. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say, right? They read the room correctly, and they knew not to say anything. So the religious leaders told Peter and John, essentially, listen, we're going to let you go here, but you need to stop talking about this Jesus, and you need to stop talking about his resurrection, and you need to stop talking about the fact that we are the reason that he was crucified. So just keep your mouth shut, okay? And we'll be fine. Given the situation, the religious leaders didn't want to be the ones who punished the miracle workers, Peter and John. And Peter said to them, basically, listen, you guys do you, we're going to do us, and we're not going to stop talking about Jesus. Peter and John left the religious leaders and headed back to their group, to the rest of the disciples, and to Mary and the others. And then Luke tells us that they all prayed. They prayed together. Now, before we talk about their prayer I want to take a second to think about how we would have responded in that situation. They'd almost lost Peter. He got arrested, and they took him away, put him in jail. When Jesus was arrested and taken away, they lost him. So they almost lost Peter, their number one guy. They almost lost John, their number two guy. They'd just been in prison. The team is probably going, we'll never see them again. What are we going to do now? Remember, that's what happened to Jesus. Religious leaders took him. They didn't let him go. But Peter and John returned, it must have been a miracle. So how do you pray in that situation? I'm kind of guessing that we would pray like we always pray. We pray mostly for protection. God, please keep us safe. Keep us from this situation in the future. Keep us from getting arrested. Then we probably instruct Peter and John, listen, guys, you gave us a big scare there. Don't do that again. Like, stop talking about Jesus. And we probably tell them, listen, at least watch what you say. Be a little bit more careful, more circumspect about saying things that are going to upset the powerful people and the influential people and the religious people who can make our lives miserable and who can throw us in jail. And we probably pray something about playing it safe and seeking God's protection and avoiding a repeat of the process, right? I mean, that's probably what we do. You think that's how they prayed? Well, let's see. Acts chapter 4, verse 24, when they had heard this, this being the report of Peter and John, so that's what we're talking about, they raised their voices together in prayer to God, so here's the first prayer of the first century church, here's what they said, sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. That's how they started their prayer, simply 
God, before we ask you anything else, we want to point out that we know who we are talking to. We're talking to the sovereign Lord. God, we know that there is nothing that is out of your control, and we know that nothing happens without your knowledge. God, we know that you made everything. We know who we're talking to. So Luke continues. This is the prayer. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, David. So what's happening here? Well, they're getting ready to quote a passage from the Hebrew Bible. In this particular time in the history of the church, they all know the Hebrew Bible, mostly Jewish people who are part of this movement. And this part of the Hebrew Bible that they're about to quote predicts that the Messiah would be persecuted and mistreated. So that's where we get to verse, the rest of verse 25 and verse 26. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against the anointed one. The anointed one in Hebrew, the Messiah, the Moshiach. And then they brought this, so they were talking Old Testament stuff, the Old Testament prophecy about the coming Messiah, and then they kind of contextualize it. They bring it into their own context in verse 27. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, who you anointed. So again, don't miss this. This wasn't written a hundred years after Jesus' resurrection. This was written mere months after Jesus' resurrection in the same city where it happened. So it's really fresh. These are real eyewitnesses. And so they were praying, God, yes, you're the sovereign God. You predicted, God, that those things were going to happen, and they happened. And Herod and Pontius Pilate rose up against your anointed one right here in this very city. And here's what they prayed next. They, they referred to Pontius Pilate and all who conspired with him, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. In other words, God, you're sovereign. You actually knew this was going to happen. It was actually happening through your power and through your will. They knew that nothing that had happened did so outside of God's sovereignty and control, not even Jesus' crucifixion. Their faith was rock solid. And then came their prayer. So here was the moment to offer their request to God. So in other words, they'd already said this part of their prayer, thank you for this day, That's, that was that part. And now they're getting to the please give me part of the prayer. So what did they ask God for? This is what they asked God for in verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. They asked for boldness? Wasn't boldness the thing that got Peter and John into trouble in the first place? That they were so bold that they just prayed what was on their heart. They just prayed about Jesus coming back from the dead. They, they were just being bold then. Boldness got them into trouble, right? Didn't their boldness land them in jail? Wasn't boldness the cause of the conflict with the religious leaders in the first place? They were already plenty bold, weren't they? Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever prayed for boldness? Anybody ever prayed for boldness? Have we ever asked God to give us boldness to speak his word, to represent him at work or at school or in our neighborhood or with our families or with our friends? Have we ever asked for boldness? I'm going to take a quick time out here. If you need coffee or to go to the men's room, no, 
kidding. I just want to make sure that no one misunderstands what I'm talking about. I'm not saying we should pray for God to help us to be weird. Okay, one of my professors used to say, listen, when you fall in love with God, it doesn't make you weird. It makes you loving. I'm not saying we should pray for God to help us to become weird, like so weird that we shout at strangers around town or, or shout out at our colleagues at work. We were in uh, California last year, and we were on the Santa Monica Pier. And as we're heading out toward the end of the pier, there were these folks, and I, I think I've actually showed pictures of them, with these huge yellow signs with black writing that said, you're going to burn in hell and come to Jesus and all this stuff. You think anybody was going, oh my gosh, I want, I want to go talk to those people. They seem nice. No, everybody just thinks they're weird. Don't be weird. I'm not saying that we should pray for God to make us weird, for God to give us this strange, holy personality where now all we do is speak Christianese and, and we repeat religious mantras just without any context or actually caring about people. We're going to talk more about that next week. But I'm talking about boldness. Boldness in not hesitating to speak the truth about Jesus to the lost. Not hesitating to speak about Jesus to the people who need him. Do you know why we're still talking about Jesus in the year 2021? It's because the first century believers were bold and asked in their prayers for more boldness. Next, they asked for something even more extreme. Acts chapter 4, verse 30. They asked God, stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, what does this mean? Now, actually, in some church practices, this is considered a passage that talks about laying hands on and faith healing and all that. It is not. It's not what that means. Here they were asking God to help them to be able to live among the non-believers in such a way that whenever the non-believers saw something unusually good or inexplicably good happen in their world, they'd notice. And the non-believers would say, wow, that must have come from God. What if you prayed like this? God, please stretch out your hand and do something through me among my unbelieving friends, among my Christian-hating friends, among my friends that have a bad taste in their mouth about my religion, among my friends who are certain that they're just too smart to go along with this whole God thing. God, would you please do something unusual through me so those people would simply have no choice but to begin to see your hand in it. And God, don't do it for me. Don't do it for my benefit. Or don't even do it for the benefit of the community, of the church. God, do it for the benefit of the lost people among us. Did you know that the miracles we've read about in the Bible, we talk about the miracles all the time, the healings and the bringing Lazarus back from the dead, all that. Do you know that those miracles were not for this, done for the sake of the people on whom the miracles were performed? Did you know that? Think about it. This lame guy that Jesus just healed, he still died. All the people whom Jesus healed eventually died. The miracles weren't for them. The point of the healings in the New Testament weren't for the people who were healed. It's not to say they didn't benefit from it. Of course they did. It's kind of a nice thing not to be dead for a few more years. It's not to say that they weren't happy about the miracle. The guy who could walk could walk. So they were happy and for sure, and they were blessed by it for sure. But the purpose of the miracle was so that other people who witnessed the miracles would say, wow, tell me more about this miracle-making God. 
The point of the miracles was not to add an air of mystery to the natural world. It was not about that at all. These believers, this early church was asking God to be equipped to go out into their world and demonstrate God's power, not for themselves, but for the lost around them. And so that the lost around them would see how God moves through this community of believers, through this ecclesia in their world. You imagine what would happen if we, the believers here at Hammock Street Church, would start doing this? Imagine what would happen if we could add this kind of request to our own prayers. If we continued to pray as we've always continued to pray, but we also added these two requests to our prayers. God, thank you for this day. Please give me a safe trip. Help me be the best I can be in my job. But God, would you give me the boldness that when I talk to my friends and family, they see you. God, would you do something through me, through my life, that would make the unbelievers around me consider you in a way that they never have before? Think about what would happen if we started to pray like the first century believers. I'm going to tell you what I know would happen. You will see more opportunities to reach out to the non-believers. You'll see more opportunities to take advantage of because that's how we are. That's how people are wired. You've heard the confirmation bias. It's when you believe something and then you read it and you go, yeah, there it is. I must be right because I just read what I already believed. Well, that's what we do. It's, a, it's human nature. So when we pray, God, make us bolder and give us opportunities and God work through us, guess what's going to happen? We're going to be bolder. We're going to notice things that we hadn't noticed before. You ever, you ever have a, uh, you're wearing a neck brace or something or a cast and all of a sudden you're walking around and everybody's wearing a neck brace or a cast? Or you buy a new Hyundai and you drive around and you go, look at all the Hyundais. I never had any idea. That's what you do. You're just looking around. It's, it's, it's on your mind. You notice things that you hadn't noticed before. And if we ask God for those things, God will do things through us that he might not have done before. Let's finish up the passage. Acts 4.31. After they prayed, the place where, the, where they were meeting was shaken. I have no idea what that means, by the way. I don't know if it was an earthquake. I don't know if the building shook. I don't know if they shook. I don't know if one person shook. We don't know. We just know the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. And then Luke said, oh, well, one more thing. And I'm not sure how this is connected at all, but it's still pretty cool. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything They had. So as soon as they became outsider-focused again, as soon as they became more concerned about their community and less concerned with themselves, as soon as they began to deeply and consistently and purposefully consider the resurrection, there was a huge outbreak among them of generosity. So here's a question. What do you say? What do you say we become a church that prays big prayers. The way we pray points to where our hearts are. The way we pray is an indication as to whether we're on track to pursue God's mission and God's plan for our area and for our friends and for our families and for our world. So can we pledge to each other that we'll add this to our prayers, something like this, God make us bolder, God stretch out your hand to do things in my life that would make the people around me say, wow, look what God is up to. 
Because, God, I want to be on a mission. I want to be part of this movement. I want to be the church in my area of the world. If we're willing to do that, God will answer our prayer. See, we're here this morning because the first century church prayed bold prayers. So now I'm going to ask you to do something I don't usually ask. I want you to pray this with me. Okay, so here it is. Here's the little prayer you can add on. Lord, follow along with me. Lord, enable me to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of Jesus. Amen. That's it for today. We'll see you all next week as we continue on in big church.